Evening, guys. Um, just want to say thanks, especially to Grant Smith, for playing bass this afternoon. The guy who was meant to play had COVID, and the guy who was a backup had COVID, and the guy who was the backup to the backup, his dog had COVID. Can't get away from it, can we? Doesn't matter. Um, God is still God, and he still rules. So why don't we just take a moment to just pray and commit this time to the Lord. Father, we just thank you for this afternoon. We thank you for your goodness. We just praise you that you rule on high. Lord, we just ask that you would help us to set our hearts and minds on you this afternoon. We'd like to be encouraged, Lord. We'd like to be empowered and we'd like to hear from you anything that you would like us to hear this afternoon. Ask that you would be with us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and we're going to sing.
Oh, you are great and greatly to be praised. Oh, you are great and greatly to be Hi. 
This is Psalm 93. It says this. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed in majesty and armed with strength. Indeed, the world is established, firm and secure. Your throne was established long ago. You are from all eternity. The seas have lifted up, Lord. The seas have lifted up their voice. The seas have lifted up their pounding waves mightier than the thunder of the great waters mightier than the breakers of the sea the lord on high is mighty your statutes lord stand firm holiness adorns your house for endless days let's just pray just after that lord does feel like we're stuck in the seas a bit guess that's going to vary depending on uh, where we all find ourselves at this point in time but we just thank you that whatever the, the seas that we're in the midst of right now you're mightier than all of that and, um, that's not triumphalist that's just true we just praise you lord and ask that you would encourage us um, whatever difficulties we might be facing at the moment moment help us to keep our eyes on you i'm just going to sing another song
you should put your hand together for the worship team. What a wonderful worship. Thanks, John. Well, it's time for our memory verse again. Um, so this month, July, we're doing that green color, that green color um, memory verse. So it's second efficient, sorry, efficient second, Two, uh, so there's two, verse eight through nine. So the kids will be doing that with us. Um, once that's done, then the kids can leave. Okay? Can we all start now? So efficient number two, verse eight to nine. For if it's grave of God, and no, and no one can boast. Thank you very much. Okay, the kids now can leave. Welcome to Subi Church. My name is Sean Kam, and I'm one of the elders um, in Subi Church. We welcome all of you, and if you are new here and you haven't met anyone yet of the staff, um, if you see one of these red lanyards, please come and see us and talk to us. We should be all outside, um, and we also have the pastor here to pray for you after the service today. Now, we do have a connect card, and the only time that I allowed you to bring up your phone is now. Bring up your phone. Scan the QR code in front of your seat. Now you can actually log on to the QR, onto the Connect card. 
And you can fill this up on the paper too and drop it in the bucket at the back if you're on the way out. But on this card here, the Connect card is important for us as Subi Church. We want to know what is going on in your life. If you do have any things that you want us to pray for you as the elders and the staff, please fill them in so that we can actually do the prayers for you every week. We also want you to put things down in the Connect card. Um, things like if you want to meet someone, you want to see someone, you want to join a program, please do that too. This is all for you to do it. And we want you to do it at least regularly, even if you are here every weekend. Because we know that you are here. If you've got nothing to say to us, at least say that, hey, the worship team is great. Put something down on it so that we know you are here, so that we actually can focus our energy on contacting those people who are in need. Now is the time to come to offering. Um, if you have not set up your auto debit with the Subi Church, you can do so. But if you do want to still physically give, please feel free at the back of and you're exiting. On the left-hand side, there's a box and envelopes. You can actually drop the offering there. Offering is important for Subi Church. It's not because we want to build a bigger church, make more rooms, uh, more coffee and tea for everyone. But we want to be able to serve the Lord with our ministry. Every ministry that you see here through the week, through the weekend, it all takes money. And also the ministry that you don't see here, um, for example, the mission ministry that we have overseas, those things take a lot of effort, time, and people's effort, and also the money that we actually help to support those ministries. So if you do come here and call this your home church, please do consider about your offering into the Sulubi Church. So let us pray before we start. Father Lord, we thank you for your blessing and your love through your Son Jesus Christ to us. A lot of the ministry work that you have offered us to here in Subi Church does take a lot of people, manpower, and also the fundings. Lord, we know that the only way that we can actually do more for you and reach the people that needs to be reached is that we continue to serve you through our offering. So, Father, we ask that you continue to bless the people who are in attending Subi, those who are especially making the offering and the tithing, um, so that we can actually continue to expand your kingdom's work. Father, Lord, we thank you, and please take this small offering from us as a token of our love back to you. Father, we thank you, and we pray all this in your son's Jesus' name. Amen. Just a few announcements. Um, we're coming up to young adults tomorrow. Tomorrow, young adults actually having a meeting. Um, it's after the 1045 service, they will be having a lunch. If the weather is good, sunny, you'll be at the Seoul Avenue picnic area, um, just off the Rockby Road entrance to the King's Park. If it's raining, we'll be back in the cafe here after the second service tomorrow and BYO lunch. We have our prayer coming up on the 20th of July, between 7 to 8 o'clock in the church cafe and also the online Zoom. If you do intend to come to the Zoom service to be, participate in the our prayer, please do put on your connect card to say that I need that link. So someone will be sending you the link. We also have a community um, coffee morning coming up on Saturday, 23rd of July. And that's between 10 and 12 in the morning. And the cafe, church cafe over here, that will be on the 23rd of July. Connect lunch is coming up again. It's next Sunday, 24th of July, starting at 12 
15, and we'll be upstairs in the activity room. If you are new to Subi Church, or as I always say, that if you even here been here a year, two years, and you haven't had the opportunity to meet the elders or the staff, and you feel like you want to have that meeting, come and share lunch with us and speak to us and see how we can actually help you, and we can actually share something with you, and hopefully we can get to know each other a bit more better. Nourish is coming up too. Uh, between the 28th of July to the 25th of August, this is every... Um, I think it's every Thursday, you'll be starting uh, for five, I think it's five sessions? Yeah, six sessions. Um, and it's between 6.30 and 8.30 p.m. It's in church cafe here. Now, you do need to register this, and it costs $10 per week for the dinner. And I always say that it's good to have a meal together, and you also can learn from each other too. Ben and Debbie Main will be teaching on Job, Suffering and Sovereignty of God. So if you do intend to come, please RSVP on the Connect card. Now this week we have budget cuts, so we don't have enough staff members up here. Um, so you will start with me again. I would like to introduce the next person, Melanie Tan, to come out here. Hi, Hi. Melanie. Hi, Sean. So Melanie, um, just want to give you a bit of rundown, very short. Melanie is our Subi Kids uh, Coordinator and she runs Awana on Tuesday night. So tonight, today is actually the spotlight for Awana. So I just want to make sure that uh, Melanie can actually share a bit of things with us regarding to Awana. So tell us a bit about Awana. Sure. Um, Awana is a midweek Bible study program for children aged three up to year six. It runs on Tuesdays from 5.30 to 7 p.m. in the evening during the school term. So. At, at Awana, the, um, there it's, we start off with handbook time, and this is a handbook right here. They go through different lessons with a, a group of about five children and one leader, and they memorize scripture every week. So if they do finish the book in a year, they will memorize up to 32 <laughs> scriptures compared to our 12 <laughs> in the congregation here. So that's, that's really impressive. And they're hiding God's word in their heart, and that's really important. Um, then they also have game time, so we actually clear the whole of all the chairs and we set up, a, we, we mark out a square and they get some exercise, run around and have lots of fun. And we end off the evening with um, large group time, which is a short sharing either by one of the leaders or sometimes we have a guest speaker on the theme of the term. So last term you can see that they are dressed up in the armor of God, so that was our theme. We have had themes before where we did spiritual disciplines or believe it or not, where we talked about Bible stories that were pretty unbelievable. And um, we actually have a video of all the kids um, dancing to the Armor of God song. That's wonderful. So that, that was our theme night where they come all dressed up and we got the children to invite their friends. There were quite a few who don't come to church regularly and we got Sue Richards to share a gospel message and then we ended it off with hot chocolate all together in the cafe. That's amazing. Now, at Subi Church, how can the congregation here help you? 
So at Awana, we have an average of about 35 to 40 kids that come regularly. We have a whole lot more that are registered. And we need volunteers, we need leaders. A lot of the leaders are parents of the Awana kids. So you know, when one child falls sick and there's a rolling sickness, that leader is out for three weeks and we're just really short of people to disciple the children properly. And we don't only want the parents to be their small group leaders to disciple them, we want mature Christians, we want young adults, we want youth to come along and support all these children so they can see who serves. And I'd just like to point out, we have a really regular group of youth who are yeah, they started after they graduated Awana, they stayed on and they have been serving regu regularly. We call them our lits, our leaders in training, and they're just a blessing to us. That's great. So, so that the people will not be fearful of what they have to do. So can you explain a bit more about what does the leader do themselves? Sure. So Awana goes for one and a half hours, but the one-on-one -on -one time that the leader has with the children is only 25 minutes that they do the handbook. So the children work at their own pace. So while there are five of them there, the leader spends time going through the lesson. They make sure they are memorizing the scripture properly. They explain it. So it's n they're not just memorizing it. That is actually going to their hearts. And during um, game time and large group time, they're just sitting with the kids and supporting them. And I, a lot of the families who now come to Awana, their parents have gone to Awana and they know how good the program is setting a wonderful Christian foundation for the family. So I'd just like to ask all of you to carefully consider serving in Awana and sowing into the next generation. You can talk to me or you can talk to Iron. We're always at the Subi Kids reception or put it on your Connect card and you'll be connected with me. That's great. As you know, children ministry is at the heart of Subi Church. We spend a lot of effort and a lot of time in grooming the children, um, making sure that they have a good foundation so that they can fend for themselves. So Awana is one of those programs that Subi Church support and we do um, expect a lot of children through the years to come through. So let's pray for you um, and your ministry and see how the Lord will serve and bring the people to you. Right. Father Lord, we thank you indeed for Awana and Melanie and the team. Lord, we know that you have asked us to come to you like little children and you want us to be like little children because we come here with innocent faith. And Lord, for these people and to bring the kids come here to Subi Church, we need a lot of people here from our church to volunteer to help in this ministry. Lord, we continue to ask of you that you will bless these children when they come through. And that, Lord, we also inspire the people that in Subi Church will be able to serve and open themselves up to come and to serve in the one. Lord, we thank you indeed and pray all this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Melanie. Good evening, church. This week's Bible reading is taken from Psalm chapter 51, verses 1 to 4. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Well, good evening. 
Sean, I forgot to get you to introduce me, but he kind of did. He mentioned the word budget cuts, so uh, it's very encouraging. Thank you. For those who may not know me, my name is Jamie Boland. I was here at Subi Church from 2009 when my wife and I first joined. Uh, in 2013, we were sent out by Subi Church to South Sudan, where we were planning to serve longer term as missionaries. Unfortunately, the war there led us to Uganda in 2014. And uh, we returned home two weeks ago, just got off the plane, and uh, we're adjusting to the cold, but it's great to be home at Subi Church. Uh, ben, unfortunately, has, he doesn't have COVID, but he is unwell. He rang me yesterday and said, look, you're up this week, uh, if you've got something you can share. And what I'm doing tonight, Psalm 51, something simple, but if you happen to be here in 2017, I spoke at a young adults uh, service on a Sunday evening. So not so many young adults here. So if you were here, this is a repeat. If not, this is the, the first time. Let's commit this time to the Lord. Father, we thank you that we can come as your people, that we can gather, that we can worship you. We ask and pray now that as we come around your word, your spirit would speak to us and your word would impact us in the way that you want it to. Father, we thank you for this in Jesus' precious name. So Anita, if you could show that first slide, please. Some of you may know this man. Anyone not know him? This is Bill Clinton. He was the 42nd President of the United States of America. It's an office that many people consider to be the leader of the free world. The second slide, Anita. Anyone know this lady? Yeah, a few laughs. This is Monica Lewinsky. Now, she was a young intern who was hired to work at the White House and no doubt infatuated by the charm and charisma and power that's exuded by the president. She and Bill Clinton commenced what we'd call a special friendship. Now, there's just one problem. Bill Clinton was married to a lady named Hillary. Here she is. We know her. Thank you. Now, he's married. She has future presidential aspirations, so it's best that we keep our special friendship a secret, our little secret. No one else needs to know. The trouble is, Monica Lewinsky, she, she liked to confide in one of her friends. It was a friend who worked at the Department of Defense. And this friend also liked to keep secrets. She liked to keep them recorded on a, well, she had them on a tape recorder. So as Monica would pour out her heart over the phone, confiding with her friend just how special her relationship with Bill Clinton was, the whole thing was being recorded. Soon, the whole world was going to know just how special their friendship was. What happened was those tapes got into the hands of a man named Kenneth Starr. He was investigating Bill Clinton for other things he'd done. And before too long, it's front page headlines. The whole world knows what's going on. Let's get serious for a minute, because we can laugh at this sort of stuff. What do we do as human beings when we, when we you know, it seems that our sin is going to be exposed and that our dirty little secrets are going to come out? What do we do when we have something shameful to hide and our reputations to protect? Listen to what Bill Clinton said as the scandal broke. On the eve of his annual State of the Union presidential address, he said these words. I want to say one thing to the American people. I want you to listen to me. I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. 
These allegations are false. What do we do when we have something shameful to hide and our reputations to protect? We deny, we lie, we hide the truth. Deny, lie, and hide. Now, Bill Clinton was probably not the first U.S. president to act in this manner, and he he likely won't be the last. In the 1970s, there was a break-in at a complex called Watergate. Anyone familiar with the Watergate scandal? Yeah? Now, this was not an average run-of-your-mill break-and-enter. Thieves had been commissioned by someone within the government to enter this building. It was the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee. And, and, and what they were doing is they were photographing uh, confidential campaign documents and they installed listening devices into the telephones. When the Watergate scandal broke, President Richard Nixon did what we humans do best. Deny, lie, and hide. He said these words, I can say categorically that no one in the White House staff, no one in this administration was involved in this very bizarre incident. Do you see what he's doing? Deny, lie, hide. History tells us that in both instances, eventually, eventually the truth came out. And this is where I want to focus. As the evidence against him piled up, Bill Clinton finally admitted that his relationship with Monica Lewinsky was, and I quote, not appropriate. It's not appropriate. He doesn't stand there and confess that he's committed adultery. He doesn't acknowledge that he's guilty of sexual immorality or the abuse of power. He simply states that his relationship with her is not appropriate. Likewise for Richard Nixon. He's caught red-handed in criminal activity, activity that would eventually cost him the presidency. And he finally admits that, and again I quote, mistakes were made. In a television interview, he, he spoke of errors of judgment, but he insisted that in covering up the scandal, he's just acted in the best interests of the nation. Now, do you notice something here? Not once do they simply come out and openly confess, I was wrong. I sinned, and I lied to cover it up. I sinned, I'm sorry. They don't do that. And so the question is, why is it so hard for us as humans to confess uncategorically our sin? Why do we need to lie, deny, and hide? It's called shame. It's called shame. And it doesn't matter if you're the leader of the free world or not. At that moment, shame's going to make you feel like the least free citizen. We lie because our reputations are on the line. What will people think of me if they know who I am and what I've done? Maybe you're thinking, well, Jamie, that's politicians. Lying is what they do best. We're Christians. We don't do that. We do. Go and read about Ravi Zacharias. And I know this is painful to share. Read about how his organization handled allegations of sexual misconduct. Read about how they refused to believe those who had been abused by him and the lengths to which they went to conceal the truth. We can't say that we don't do this. We do. Today what I want to do is focus on someone else's sin. A national leader whose crimes easily overshadow those of Richard Nixon and Bill Clinton. 
Not only was this man the nation's leader, he was also a national hero. He's a decorated war hero, a man the people admire, a man the people respect. He was a man of God. But this man, even though he was a powerful warrior and a powerful king, he found that he was a man who could be enslaved. Enslaved by his passions. Enslaved by the consequences of his inability to control his own sexual desire. We all know Psalm 51. Sometime after his sin with Bathsheba, David wrote this poem to express his thoughts and emotions. And ever since that time, Psalm 51 has been our go-to when we, when we sin. It's our go-to prayer in response to sin. But before we look at this psalm, there's something I want us to consider. When exposed, David doesn't deny what he's done. He doesn't have the prophet Nathan killed. Just, just think about this. You're the prophet. You get the word from God, and, and God says, go to, go to David. Thanks, God. I, I'm going to lose my neck. David could have him killed, yeah? This is what governments do. They silence the whistleblower, keep things hush-hush. But David doesn't do that. Instead, he goes back to doing something he knew well. He wrote a song. A public song confessing a private sin. A song that's going to be prayed in public by the very people that look up to him. David the king, he takes his shame, he takes his humiliation, and he makes it into a song. And then he gives this song to his people. It becomes enshrined in the nation's hymn book. Do you see what he's doing? He's saying, learn about my shame. Learn from my humiliation. And you ask yourself, who does this? A man after God's own heart. Let's go back to our reading from today, the opening verses. Verses 1 to 4. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Let those words sink in. Do you notice what David doesn't do? He doesn't talk about errors of judgment. He doesn't insist that mistakes were made. He doesn't try to minimize his actions by arguing that his relationship with Bathsheba was simply not appropriate. Instead, he takes ownership of his actions. Look at these words he uses and look at their frequency. Blot out my transgressions. That's ownership. Wash away my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. I have sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. There's no blame shifting here. David takes responsibility. He doesn't say, but God, that woman, she's so beautiful. He takes ownership, he mans up. And think about these words that David uses. Now, they may seem similar, synonymous, but their, their meanings are actually quite significant, the different meanings. 
The word sin means to miss the mark. Iniquity refers to crookedness or perversion. Transgression means to rebel against a set standard. Guys, this is us. We miss the mark. We can so easily choose perversion. And boy, oh boy, we can, we can easily rebel, yeah? We know that sin is wrong, and yet we so easily choose it. In Africa, where we were serving, people often talk about casting out all sorts of demons or spirits in order to overcome sin. I was once listening to a, a sermon, and at the end he was having an altar call. And the altar call was to cast out the spirit of marriage breakdown. I kid you not. Basically what it's saying, Dave, if you have a problem in your marriage, just come forward, respond to the call, we'll cast out a spirit, and everything's going to be okay. Do you hear what they're saying? It's not us. We're not the problem. It's them. They're to blame. They cause us to sin. Can I tell you, you don't need the devil to help you sin. You're perfectly capable of doing it all by yourself. This is us. We rebel. We walk on crooked paths. And ultimately, we miss the mark. After the Lewinsky affair, a special counsel to President Clinton said this, Tell it all. Tell it early. Tell it yourself. There's wisdom here. Tell it all. Tell it early. Tell it yourself. When you deny, lie, and hide, you are forced to live with the fear that one day your sins will be exposed. And that fear of exposure, trust me, I've lived with this, that fear of exposure will keep you a prisoner to a voice of shame within you. Confession is the only way to silence that accusing voice. Are we okay so far? I know this is heavy. Confession helps us deal with our sin. But how are you going to deal with that issue of guilt before God? How do you deal with that? Let's listen to these very first words uttered by David. Verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. So far we've seen our nature. Now we get to consider the nature of God. It's found in these three beautiful words. Mercy, love, compassion. David confesses what he's done and now he comes face to face with what it is he actually needs. To begin with, he needs mercy. Mercy is simply getting what we don't deserve. Or sorry, simply not getting what we deserve. What's the penalty for adultery? It's death. That's the law. And David knows that. But the man after God's own heart, he appeals to something outside the law. He appeals to something greater. He reaches out for the love, mercy, and compassion of God. That's what we need to reach out to. Look at the opening words in verse 4. 
Against you, you only, have I sinned. Now, I'll be honest, whenever I read this psalm, these words trouble me deeply. As I read this and think about what David's done, it's like, is David denying that in his actions of taking a married woman and calling her to the king's bed and leaving her husband or having her husband killed to cover up the crime, it's as if he's denying that he sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah. You know, I once read an article that suggested that David was guilty of rape. I saw it raised again this week. The argument is something like this. Bathsheba was in no position to refuse the king. She was seen. She was summoned. She must consent. David has abused his power as king to force her into his bed, and she's in no position to say no. Who is she to refuse the king? That's the argument. Against you, you only have I sinned. You know, this is a a remarkable response considering that David committed adultery, some say rape, and then had the defiled woman's husband killed to cover up his crime. So is David denying his sin against this family or is he saying something else? Here's what I think David is saying in this very public declaration of guilt. Yes, I cannot deny that I succumbed to lust. Yes, I cannot deny that my actions resulted in adultery and death. But ultimately, ultimately my sin bears the most serious of all consequences. I have broken my relationship with God. This confession against you, you only have I sinned, it reminds Israel that even their king reports to a higher authority. You see, what's at stake here is not David's reputation as a leader. What's at stake is his relationship with God. You may be familiar with the phrase, to fall from grace. You're familiar with the phrase? Yes. When someone of high standing is caught in a moral failure, that's what we say, they've fallen from grace. Let's think about those words, a fall from grace. It means that someone of whom much is expected has fallen from good standing in the eyes of the community. Their name is now ruined. Their reputation is soiled. That's why we deny, lie, and hide. I'm sure these words were used in relation to Bill Clinton and Richard Nixon. What David does here is he points us to a far graver reality. Against you, you only have I sinned. This is much more than a political or social consequence. It's a spiritual one. And if we refuse to take responsibility and ownership of our sins, if we deny, if we lie and hide, what we're going to do is fall away from the only thing that can restore us. Grace. David has broken his relationship with God and only grace can restore that. If that's you here tonight, my words to you are, don't fall from grace. I once read an author who, who said he pictured his sins as being like, a, he's, building a, uh, he's filling in bricks that are walling him off from God. It's like, here's me, here's God, and my sin, it's like it's, it's separated me. It's walled me off. Let me stress this. Don't allow feelings of guilt and shame to lead you to construct the wall that God has already destroyed. Can I say that again? 
Don't allow your feelings of guilt and shame to lead you to construct a wall that God has already destroyed. I can't imagine the guilt that David is consumed by. But he doesn't build a wall. Instead, he throws himself upon the compassion, love, and mercy of God. Let me stress this point. Broken human relationships can always be explained away as someone else's fault. I can have a problem with Stephen here and say, Stephen, our relationship is broken down, and I can point the finger at you and say you're to blame. Can I tell you the same is never true when it comes to God and us? If you are consumed with guilt, don't build that wall. Look at verse 10. A beautiful verse. I think we have it just over there. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. I love the way this is paraphrased in the Message Bible. God, make a fresh start in me. Shape a Genesis week from the chaos of my life. I, I read that and I just love the way it captures David's desire for God to do something new. God, as you did in the beginning, out of the chaos, make something good. But this time, let it be for me a pure heart. I could ask you to raise your hand. How many times have you prayed this prayer? How many times have you prayed this prayer where you earnestly cry out to God to get Him to do that new thing in you, to create that pure heart? Because this is what grace does, yes? Grace offers a fresh start. It allows us this new beginning. But can I tell you, a new beginning doesn't wipe out the consequence of your sin. Consider verse 11. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Think about David. David witnessed the decline of Saul. Saul was the man. He's the man. He's anointed as king. God's spirit comes upon him. But what happened when Saul sinned? He's rejected by God. He's cast from his presence. The spirit, it departs from his life. Saul is consumed with jealousy. He goes mad and ultimately he loses the kingship. He loses the opportunity to lead God's people. And I think that's what David is saying here. He's saying, God, don't, don't take away the kingship from me. God, don't, don't depart from my life. Give me a second chance to lead your people in your ways, O oh God. Think about David's sin. Maybe you're saying, well, I'm not a king, so it doesn't really affect me as equally. But think about this. His sin had the power not just to destroy his life, but to destroy the lives of those who were depending on him as a leader. The same is true for us. Sexual sin has the power to destroy the leader that God wants you to be in your home. Whether you're the dad or the mum. Think about myself as a husband, as a father. If I walk in a straight line, then my wife and my kids are going to live in a far greater environment. 
But if I choose the crooked path, it's not just my life that's affected. It's their lives as well. How often have we seen sexual sin destroy not just the man who's committed adultery, but the impact it has on a family? The onus is on us. I need to walk with God if I'm to lead my children into following God. How can I, how can I serve those properly that God has entrusted to me if I'm not walking in a straight path? I could only think what would happen if I committed adultery. What would any reasonable wife say? Pack your bags. You're out of the house, buddy. My Italian wife, she would say, Quella è la porta. There's the door, buddy. Just keep walking. Why? Because you've been unfaithful. Not only have you lost the right to be her husband, you've also lost the right to lead your own children. How can I lead them if I'm not walking in God's ways? And when we break it down like this, you can kind of get a sense of David's inner turmoil. He knows he's been unfaithful. And yet he doesn't want to end up on the scrap heap like Saul. And so here he is. He's pleading with God. Give me a second chance to fulfill that responsibility to be the leader that you've called me to be. Give me that opportunity to continue to lead your people. He feels there's an, a lesson to be learned from his act of unfaithfulness. And that's essentially the thrust of verses 12 and 13. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. And that's how Psalm 51 functions for us. It helps us to turn back to God. But here, David, he's just pleading. Don't remove your presence from my life. Let me remain as king. Let me lead others to the God that I know, the God that forgives sin. I heard a story once of a small boy who asked his father. He said, Dad, if, if God forgives our sin, then what's the problem with sinning? You ever heard something like that before, parents? Kids have this knack of asking these great theological questions. And so the father, what he did is he said, I... Oh, he gave his son a, a piece of wood, a hammer, and some nails. And he said, son, what I want you to do is I want you to hammer those nails into the wood. The son does it. And then the dad says, now I want you to pull them out. So the son thinks it's strange, but he, he does it anyway. And the father says, son, what's left? What do you see? The son looks at him and he's like, well... Uh, I, I, I see a piece of wood. And he says, son, I want you to look closer. What do you see? And he says, nothing. I see nothing. And he says, son, look closer. And then the son says, I see the woods, the wood, but as I look closer, I see marks. Here's the point. God forgives sin, but sin always leaves a mark. We know the story. God does allow David to continue as king. But from that point on, his kingship is plagued with strife. The 
The prophet Nathan had foretold that the sword would not depart from his house. One son rapes his half-sister. Her enraged brother Absalom waits two full years to murder his own half-brother. This then sets off a, a chain of events that leads to an armed revolt against his own father. A revolt that nearly brings down the entire kingdom. If you're sitting here today and saying, it's okay, God forgives sin. Just remember, sin always leaves a mark. It has the potential to destroy your destiny. About three weeks ago, I spoke to some graduating students, Sudanese, who were in Uganda going back to some very hard mission fields to minister amongst Muslims. I told them, do not fear the devil. Fear only one thing. Fear sin. It can destroy the destiny that God has for you. Verse 14. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God, my Savior. Now for the Hebrew people, blood guilt is something that derives from murder, the, the shedding of an innocent person's blood. What we see here is that David is openly acknowledging his role in Uriah's death. But there's a lesson for us here as well. If, if God can forgive David for the great evil that he's done, how much more can he forgive us for the sins we've committed? If you're here today and say, I've built a wall because God couldn't possibly forgive me for the sins that I've done. If he can forgive David, how much more us? Verse 15. I love this verse. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. Do you know why I love this verse so much? David's guilt means that he should be silent before a just and holy God. He's got nothing to say. And yet he is someone who is able to receive forgiveness, expressed in confession, and turn to thankfulness and praise. Can we be that person? Can we be that person that knows that God has forgiven us despite what we've done, despite who we are, and express that in thanksgiving and praise. Verses 16 and 17. We're almost done. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. Now, for those who don't know me that well, I originally came from a Pentecostal background. And, you know, we'd often get people preach, and they'd preach in a way that probably wasn't always exactly faithful to Scripture, but it was designed to encourage people to build them up. I once heard a guy come, and he was doing a message for the offering. We often have offering messages. And he used a verse from Psalm 50, verse 10. God says this, Every animal of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. Now, we all know that verse, yeah? You've all heard it shared about. And so this preacher for the offering, he went on to explain that our God is a God of abundance. He has the cattle on a thousand hills. It's like he's some wealthy Texas cattle rancher. 
Therefore, because God's so rich, there's no reason you should be without. There's no reason you should be in lack. God is a God of abundance. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Can I tell you, that's not what Psalm 50 verse 10 is saying. If you read the entire psalm, context is key. God is rebuking the people for their empty sacrifices. They think it's enough to turn up at the altar, bring another dead cow, go through the motions, perform the ritual, and God will forgive us. God's like, no, I don't need another dead animal. All the animals in the forest are mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. So don't you bother coming here bringing me another dead cow. I don't need another dead one. I've got living ones on a thousand hills. I don't want a dead one. But what I want is the one thing I would never take from you. The one thing I ask that you would give to me. And that one thing is your heart. What David's doing here is he's continuing that theme in Psalm 51, the very next psalm. He says, God, you don't delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. What he's saying is don't just go through the motions of doing church. Don't just go through the motions of looking religious. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. Do you know the law prescribes sacrifice for sin? You've got to bring a dead animal. That's the law. But once again, David looks beyond the law to something greater. God doesn't really long for another dead cow. What God longs for is inward change. That we would be a people called by his name who would love him more than we love sin. And let's be honest, we're often rebuking sin with one hand, but pulling it back with the other. David knows what God wants. That's why he concludes with these words in verse 19. Then, once there is this inward change, a heart broken in repentance, then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous in burnt offerings offered whole, then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let me bring this to a close. Some of you may, be, uh, may have seen the film Flights with Denzel Washington. Anyone seen this? If you've not seen it, let me give you an adults-only warning. It is gritty. Okay, it's very gritty. Denzel Washington, he plays a pilot who miraculously crash lands a plane in a storm. And this guy, he's a national hero. Everybody loves him. He's the man. Or so it seems. As the film unfolds, you see the reality that he's actually living a lie. He's an alcoholic. He abuses drugs. He's violent. Sexually promiscuous. His life is on a downward spiral. In fact, his entire life is one big plane wreck. And he's lost everything that, that really matters in life. His marriage, his relationship with his son, his soul. At the end of the film, he appears before a commission that's investigating the crash. 
All he has to do is tell one more lie. One more lie and he can walk away free. But as he sits there in that commission, the light obviously shines upon him. And he realizes, unless he finally faces the cold hard truth about who he really is, then he'll never ever truly be free. The final scene, he's in prison. He's sharing his story with a group of inmates and he, he says these words. This is going to sound real stupid for a man who's locked up in prison. But for the first time in my life, I'm free. We can deny, we can lie, we can hide. But eventually the truth will catch up with us. Or we can be free. Clean up or cover up? Which one will we choose? We're going to come into a time of communion now. I'd like us to take a time of reflection. Let us just pause and think. Is there anything in your life that you know you need to bring into the light? Would I ask you to take a moment, reflect. Let us prepare our hearts for sharing the Lord's table. John Kelvin said, Repentance is not the start of the Christian life. It is the Christian life. This is not a one-off transaction. It should be a daily habit, a Christian practice. Heavenly Father, our desire is that our lives be one of integrity, transparency. That we would be a people that love you more than we love sin. But Father, we know that we know who we are. God, I know my heart and it scares me. Father, we thank you for this psalm from David. May we be a people who don't build a wall, but seek to throw ourselves upon your love, mercy, and compassion. Father, as we come to this time of sharing the Lord's table, may we remember just how much you long to forgive us, that you sent your only son. You did not spare him, but you sent him so that we could be forgiven so that we could be reconciled into a relationship with you. And so, Father, now let our hearts be prepared. Let us bring that which needs to be brought into the light. And may we, may we come knowing that we're accepted by you. Father, we give you thanks for who you are. In Jesus' name. As we come to partake, we'd ask those in the front rows to come first. If you could hold the emblems until everyone's seated and we'll partake together.
on the night he was betrayed, Jesus shared Passover with his disciples. I'll read from Matthew's gospel. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body, the body of Christ. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins.
filled in your Connect card, I believe there is a place to drop that on the way out, or you can scan the QR code if you'd like someone to connect with you or pray for you. Also understand there'll be someone at the front if you need some burdens to share or someone to stand alongside you in prayer. Let me close with a benediction from 2 Corinthians. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forevermore. Have a great week. Be blessed.